This is a CBC podcast. The following podcast is about family relationships and the harms of colonization on Indigenous people in Canada. It contains depictions of racism and abuse. If you need support, you can find information about where to turn for help at cbc.ca/theherboriginal. The road into the village of Lacwalams is horrible. I once joked in a stand-up routine about my mom's ignorance of technology. When I mention a hard drive, she thinks I'm talking about the road to Lacwalams. Today though, there's no laughter. I'm choking on the road dust from the cars ahead of me, and the potholes are big enough to swallow me up. It's 2016, and I'm back in my dad's village. His shadow looms large as one of the last great chiefs of the Allied tribes, Nice Wibas. And so does the specter of a global deal. An oil and gas proposal that could bring wealth to my nation or destroy the resource we are sworn to protect. The refrain, "What am I doing here?" plays over and over in my head. I'm Rudy Kelly. This is the Herb Original. Episode 5 People of the Salmon I'm here to start a new job running the recreation and communication departments for the band. It's my first permanent position working for the village government and I'm anxious because Lacwalams means everything and nothing to me. It's where my father grew up, but it's not where I grew up. I feel that whatever I do will always be in comparison to his legacy. I'm acutely aware of everything that I am not. A member of the res, a fisherman, a carver, a dancer, and everything they think I am. An apple, an outsider, a sellout. I pull into the parking lot and step out of the car. A group of ravens give me the side eye. Like they're saying, "What are you doing here?" My new employees glance at me with smiles that quickly evaporate. What is on their minds? I can't tell if they're judging me because I'm the mayor's cousin, or because I'll never live up to the legacy of my father. I want to tell them that I have fresh ideas. I'm not just a cousin or a son. I can bring real change. And I want to tell him that I care deeply about the village and the people. But I know they've heard it before. And the only thing they really want to know is whose side I am on. Good morning. I'm Cecilia Walters. Our top story, we are getting some more details today about a multi-billion dollar LNG development proposal for BC. Among Not only have I stepped into a new job, I've stepped into a civil war. A brewing battle over industry versus tradition, salmon versus oil, chief versus chief. Lines were being drawn everywhere across the community. Welcome everybody from every nation to the Kitwagats territory and the House of Gris Oil is on this island. I am Gris Oil. I'd like to welcome everybody here to this island to this historic event. So, this is Donnie Wesley, a fisherman, 
hereditary chief Yahan. And the poster child, or rather the poster elder, of the anti-Petronist LNG movement. Before the project proposal, Donnie was living the quiet life of a semi-retired fisherman and grandfather. But sometimes, the best laid plans of salmon and men. In 2012, Petronas, a Malaysian oil and gas company, pitched a $36 billion liquefied natural gas, or LNG, project to Lakwalams. The proposal was to build a facility on Lilu Island near Prince Rupert that would ship millions of tons of LNG to Asian markets every year. A project that proponents said would create hundreds of jobs and a lifetime of wealth for the Lakwalams nation. At first, the project seemed like the perfect path out of indigenous poverty and unemployment, a major step towards economic self-determination. And Donnie Wesley was excited. They held the very first meeting at uh, our school gym, and it was overwhelming. Um, you know, like the, the excitement in the village. You know, the money that was going to be generated to each man, woman, and child, 283,000 over 40 years or whatever. You know, like, that was in the room, you know, and I started thinking, wow, I could use that 283,000, my son, my daughter, my grandkids, you know, we could live well. But then Donnie started to ask questions about the riches being promised. And you know, you started really settling down and listening really to the fine detail, like asking the questions, okay, when do I get my check? Do I get it tomorrow? Do I get it when the project starts? Oh no, 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 you're gonna get it over the lifetime of the 40 years. Wow. So how much am I going to get a day or something? Like, what is it going to boil down to? You know, you really didn't need a calculator, you know, to do the math, you know, in your head like that. You give me six bucks a day? You know, I could, I could make more in jail. And Donnie had to think about more than the money. He started to wonder about the effects of the LNG plant on the salmon and its hereditary lands of Lilu Island. And on the future of the nation. My interest was to make sure that sockeye kept on going, make sure that the people were fed, you know, make sure that my community didn't lose it. You know, we were born there. We were born in that river, so, I mean, we gave that river the name, so we couldn't, you know, to, to walk away and just say, hide in the corner and do nothing about somebody that's, this was war, like this was an act of war on the people of my village, so. On August 25, 2015, Donnie and his supporters made international headlines. They occupied Lilu Island to protect the salmon. That morning, it was going to the island like that. A lot of reflection went back on the Shmoigats from way back when they were taking land, you know, and how did they do it like that when they first seen the new land, you know, and they come across all this beauty and pristine stuff like that. And 
you know, I, I thought to myself, it's, it's been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years since a chief has actually went back on the land and said, this is mine, I'm taking it back. This is my, my island and I'm not going to let it be developed, I said, for this purpose. But critics questioned Donnie's hereditary claims to the land. And they called out his relationship with the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations that were financially supporting the Lilu Island occupation. Then these jet boats started showing up. People from terrace, environmental groups started showing, showing up like that, and I didn't know them. You know, and I didn't know any of these guys like that, and they were handing me stuff here, you could got a cell phone for you, whatever you want, like whatever you need, just ask us. Oh, I didn't know what I needed. You know, these people had big tents like that, they had big uh, army tents, they were, they were well equipped, they were ready to go. There were accusations of bribery from both sides. Donnie tells me that he got hints of offers, big offers, from both sides in a nudge-nudge, wink-wink way, but that he didn't bite. He was just a small village guy, caught up in something bigger than he could have imagined. At the end of the day, I had no idea where this was going to go or how big it was going to get or what kind of people I was going to run into. Um... The people that were backing me financially, they just said, you know, we want to know if you're in this for the long haul. I said, I don't know. I said, what, what is the long haul? Like, what do you mean? And they said, it might be years. Well, I said, if I'm going to be a fisherman, I guess I have to be here. I said, if I'm a head of a house, Group, I said, I have to be here. I said, I wouldn't wear a chief's blanket, I said, if I, if I didn't defend the land. On the other side of the divide over LNG was my cousin, John Helene, the mayor of Lackwellams and the political champion of the Patronus LNG terminal. John is eight years older than me, and I didn't see his family much growing up. So it wasn't until a recent chat with him that I discovered the huge sacrifice his father had to make to put food on the table. Back then, my dad, who's a hereditary chief, and his family lost their status because my grandfather, Henry Helene, who was running a fish packer for Canadian Fish at the time, couldn't be bonded because of uh, status Indian, couldn't be bonded back then. So he gave up his status to keep his job to feed his family. So... So every one of his kids lost their status, which meant we all lost ours when we were born, or didn't have status when we were born. So, Under the Indian Act, any Indigenous person who became a professional, like a fisherman, would automatically lose their status. For John's family, enfranchisement, as it was called, meant they were effectively cut off from their Indigenous friends and neighbours. We moved to Lockwell Lambs on the white side. <laughs> My dad bought a, a big Victorian house there that was a post office, and it had a fireplace in every room, and it was a nice big old building. It was cold in the winter. And <laughs> Elaborate on what you just said, uh, the white side. 
in uh, Lock of the Lambs, there's uh, the reserve, and then there's the white side. <laughs> Once you're off the reserve, you're on the white side. So, In 1987, when I was in Calgary and halfway to my journalism diploma, John and his family had their Indian status restored. Or, as one of our cousins used to say, his can of brown paint came in the mail. After that, John was determined to right wrongs and make things better for his people. He ran for the Lackawalams Band Council and, eventually, was elected chief councillor. And he saw that there was a lot of work to do. And the reason for me to get into politics was that uh, just watching our community, which was a big community on the coast that uh, mostly made their living from fishing and, and forestry jobs, and watching those uh, industries become... Uh, just about extinct now. I mean, today in our commercial salmon gillnet fishermen can't make a living uh, fishing salmon. So just trying to improve the lot of our members, whether it's through education, social programs, uh, economic development. So it's important that we survive and, 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 and uh, become successful in our traditional territory. For John... The Petronis LNG project was a way to achieve all of these things. He believed the LNG proposal addressed the environmental concerns and answered the needs of a struggling nation. We had a seat at the table. If we didn't like something regarding the environment or any of that uh, negative stuff that might pop up, we could stop it and mitigate the, the problem. So that gave me comfort in going forward and, you know... The project was pro uh, projected to be a $40 billion project. Out of that, we negotiated for our community and our membership $1 to $2 billion in, in benefits over the life of the project. So, And then, you know, you f factor into that what we could do with that money regarding housing, education, and all the needs that we do have. So, And the salmon were disappearing. LNG project or not. And today it's, it's non-existent for commercial salmon gill netting. So trying to diversify your economy was, was huge for, for me and get uh, the mindset of our people to understand that is always uh, a problem. Once upon a time, there were four cannery villages in Port Ed, and there were six fish plants on the Prince Rupert waterfront, including the largest cannery in the world. Our people worked on fish packers, salmon trawlers, and gill netters. Prince Rupert's population was as high as 20,000. My whole family worked in the cannery. The girls worked with my mom at co-op, popping herring roe and filling cans with fish. Us boys worked with my dad at BC Packers, unloading boats, dressing salmon, and freezing fish for delivery. It was chaos at my house when we all sped home to inhale supper, then dash back for overtime. My dad reveled in the boom. Since he was a big man at the plant and then, on weekends, his band played in packed bars. 
Prince Hubert and Portet were booming with lots of money and good times, largely built on the shiny blue backs of salmon. Until the salmon started to run out, or to be mismanaged, depending on who you talk to. The cannery villages and the Nelson Brothers plant in Port Ed closed, followed by most of the plants in Prince Rupert, and there were fewer and shorter fishing openings. The indigenous population was hit the hardest. Many of our fishermen, with large debts, were losing their boats, and many shore workers, with little education and skills, fell into poverty. But salmon is not just about money for us. Salmon is the heart and soul of the Simshan Nation. It is sacred, our way of life. We smoke it, we dry it, we candy it, we bake it, we barbecue it, we put it in soup, we jar it, and we make sandwiches, fish sandwiches. These sandwiches are served at weddings. Feasts, funerals, and any event with the word "fest" in it. I'm a connoisseur because my mom made the best fish sandwiches, and it wasn't just me and the family that thought so. She was the official fish sandwich maker for the elders' food stand at Indigenous events. She would have to make so many to meet the demand that her hands cramped up. I don't like these events, she would say to me, massaging her hands. They always make me make fish sandwiches. Poverty, job loss, the struggle between the traditional ways and the new economy, the black and white battle of oil versus salmon, all fueled divisions across the Simshan Nation, and the Petronas LNG proposal gained global attention. Suddenly, strangers were in our midst, roaming about the village on the ferry, tapping on car windows, demanding to know what side we were on—oil and gas, or the environment—and that quickly created suspicion. I already knew I was an outsider, but now it felt like one false move in favor or against LNG would seal my fate as either an Indian or an apple. Divided opinions quickly escalated: tribal house versus tribal house, family versus family, neighbor versus neighbor, spy versus spy. I too felt torn, trying to appease the elected council, my employers, while trying to listen to my heart. I wondered what my dad would do. Go on, school, shoes, the, 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 the Try to、uh, compete with one another. Who's the richest? My cousin Sandra Dilward believes my dad would have put a stop to the LNG battles. 
that his powerful leadership would have quelled the storm. One hand, they're saying, oh, yes, yes, you know. We all, you know, we respect the tribes, and yes, we know. But in the meantime, they're the ones all over our territories. Because, I mean, their jurisdiction is only on reserve. So anything off reserve I should have nothing to do with them. But they've learned that there's lots of money to be made, and that's where they're getting their money from. So, of course, they don't want the tribes involved because, good Lord, we care about the land, and we might not want an oil pipeline through there, or we might not want explosives on Ridley Island. So... It's easier not to tell us anything. But I think about your dad all the time and what he would say about it. I wish he was here. I think he was the last one that was respected by anybody. My dad and I are both pragmatic. He grew to value the mass harvesting of salmon, the industry of it, for the wealth it gave to his people. I think Libby Kelly would have considered the LNG project perhaps seeing it as a second boom, like the fish plants had provided. But hereditary chief Niswe Boss, bound by duty, would have said no to it. Arch Sterrett worked with my dad as the director of the Simshen Tribal Council. And that's where he lived the ongoing conflict of hereditary versus elected chiefs. I had a chance to talk to Art recently at a basketball game about my dad and First Nations leadership. I want to tell you something about hereditary chiefs, something that your dad and I talked about, but my dad and I talked about. Hereditary chiefs are not, if you go back to our own language, Simogat. Simogat, the white man came along and said, oh, that's your chief. Well, chief is a white man's name. They... Like, we're even going to let you have a chief counselor, right? So the chief counselor was intended to undermine the hereditary chief, right? However, Simolga does not mean chief. It means protector. Simolga means protect, to protect. Simolga, the real protector, get of the people. Simolga the real protector of the people, the real protector of the land. But my dad has been gone for 20 years by this point. Times have changed. And I'm hoping to be a part of the change, but having stepped into it at a late stage in my life, the clock is ticking. Ticking for me and for young leaders like Chris Sankey. Chris was in his second term as a Lackawalam's band counselor when the Petronas proposal came along. And whether it was provincial court or the one of public opinion, he was battle-tested. A tough, gritty kid who grew up between the village and Prince Rupert. Well, I grew up in a, in a home uh, that was riddled with substance abuse, uh, drugs and alcohol, um, violence, uh, physical violence, uh, um, physical and sexual and mental, and so much of it uh, that... I mean, I didn't think I was going to get out of Flucklelams at, at one point. But uh, as an adult, I, I remember, I remember um, telling myself that uh, I will never live like this ever again when I have kids. I went uh, to get help numerous times and just to deal with the trauma of residential school and being survivors, being this survivor, the kids of survivors. Um, people don't understand how that trickles into our lives it's it's like you were there 
because everything that was taught to our, our, our parents is taught to you, and it's not always pretty. As an elected politician, Chris pins his hopes on LNG as a way out from the intergenerational poverty and hopelessness that he experienced growing up. Those hopes grew into commitment after Chris traveled to Malaysia to see a major facility there. We flew to Bintulu, where Petronas has their LNG facility, where they employ 1,800 people year-round. And then I saw people fishing in the river with their nets, their boats, and their skiffs and everything. Um, And so I said, I asked a fisherman, so do you work at the plant? And he said, yeah, I work four days on, four days off. So on my four days off, I come fishing. And so it was just, it opened my eyes to a whole new view of what was being proposed in Canada. It was hard to know who to believe. There was so much distrust swirling around, and it felt like ulterior motives were hiding in every corner, on both sides. Come decision day, despite mixed emotions, I checked the yes box. I had doubts. But to not do anything? To accept the status quo of poverty and a salmon supply that was still dwindling without an LNG plant to blame was unacceptable. And, to be honest, the raven in me was very curious. My inner trickster wanted to see what this new world for Lacqua Lambs and Prince Rupert would look like. But the Petrominus LNG facility proposed for Lacqua Lambs wasn't to be. Good morning uh, to all of you. Thank you for taking the time to dial in. Uh, today is a very difficult day for Pacific Northwest LNG and Petronas. As you are aware, the Pacific Northwest LNG have announced, its, uh, announced that the proposed LNG project will not proceed. The day of the announcement, I was sitting in my office in the Lacolam's administration building. My thoughts immediately went to my cousin and mayor, John Helene. I walked across the road to the small longhouse that functioned as the council chambers. I caught sight of John through his office window and stopped. He was sitting at his desk, hunched over, staring into space. He didn't look like he wanted company. Not now. So I backpedaled and I sent John a text message instead. I told him that I'd heard the news and that I was sorry. A few minutes later, John texted back. He said that he'd just gotten off the phone with the representatives from Petronas. They told him that they would write one final check. A thank you to the community for considering the project. And then it was like Rome burning. The band council was now split. Mayor Helene's support was quickly dwindling and his rivals, who had opposed the project, surged to favor. The die was cast, and with it, my job became tenuous. I learned that, in Lambs, if you fail to change your political allegiances to the most dominant faction, you're not likely to survive. So, with the writing on the wall, I bailed before they could strap me to the catapult, and I got back on the ferry. There was no cake that day, no pats on the back, no handshakes, 
just a silent departure. Me sitting in the fairy lounge, watching the dock get smaller and smaller and disappear into the mist. Like a reverse brigadoon. Today, the conflict over LNG is far from over. Petronis is in a joint venture to build a $40 billion LNG facility on Heisla territory in Kitimat. But the coastal gaslink pipeline faces fierce opposition from some indigenous hereditary chiefs and groups. And this past year, Lakwalams has again been drawn in, with Anishka considering a new LNG project that Lakwalams claims encroaches on its territory. The same issues that tore my community apart continue to play out over and over again across BC. With the cancellation of the Lakwalams LNG project and me out of a job, I took the time to write my first novel. Donnie Wesley and John Helene both stepped back from politics, but Donnie still remains opposed to LNG development. And it's always got to be the land because that's what we're based on. That's that's why we're here. That's why this, we claim this land is ours. Just like Ukraine and Russia. Same principle. We're here. We're not going nowhere. And John remains in favor of LNG. That nobody's going to win if we're fighting each other. You know, the, the world needs our energy and uh, we should be benefiting from it. And we should be working together. It, it just doesn't seem to work that way. So, Chris Sankey, who wound up leaving banned politics halfway through his term, now works full-time as an energy industry advocate. I'm tired of our people fighting one another over things that I believe are sol- solvable. And if we keep doing that, if we keep doing that, Rudy, <clears throat> if we keep fighting over things that, that I believe are hindering us to reaching our... our our, our best version of ourselves, our highest potential, then our past will always be our future. We'll continue to fight over things that everyday Canadians are going to never, either A, will never understand, or B, somewhat understand, and a very little will understand, but the rest of the world will continue to move on without us. But how can we move on without addressing what's at the center of the conflict? The struggle to preserve who we are versus who we could become. Hereditary versus elected chiefs. Unceded lands versus the reservation system. The future of the land and the salmon. Especially when so many indigenous people are fighting to feed themselves, their families. These quandaries weigh heavily. But if I just keep looking forward, I can almost forget them. I want to ignore them to convince myself that they don't matter to me, that they have no meaning in my life. Until I'm at the one place left where being indigenous is all that matters. on the next episode of The Herb Original. Uh, my nickname was Smurf because I was short, <laughs> small, and stocky and quick. Uh, I played basketball. Well, man, I started playing when I was five. Uh, you know, we had uh, the old tire spoke wheel. 
we took out the spokes and made a hoop <laughs> on the res and you nailed it up on a piece of plywood and that was your backboard and that was your hoop. A modern day potlatch of gathering, celebration, and even forgiveness. That's in episode six, The All Native. The Herb Original is written and produced by me, Rudy Kelly, and Carolina DeRay. The sound editing is by Jeff Walter. Special thanks to CBC archivist David Jones. Our senior producers are Catherine Hansen, Jay Bertinoli, and Sherald Tobin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.